you will open your Bibles to the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers chapter 21, and we'll begin our reading in just a moment in verse 4. We'll read through verse 9. Again, the book of Numbers chapter 21, and we'll read beginning in verse 4 here in just a moment. Most of us are probably familiar with the term whiplash. Uh, it's, it's an injury uh, that occurs uh, probably most often in uh, automobile accidents when a car is struck from behind and uh, the, the head is propelled forward then backward doing damage uh, to the neck. And it uh, can be a very debilitating uh, type of injury this, uh, uh, resulting from this dramatic, this uh, uh, forceful and very uh, fast change of direction. And uh, probably those of us that live here in Alabama, uh, if we're standing here today and we look back on this past week and look at our temperatures being uh, in the single digits and then look forward uh, to the coming week when the temperatures supposedly will be approaching 70 degrees, uh, we might get a, a bit of whiplash. Uh, uh, that is, the, this uh, extreme change of uh, directions of approximately 60 degrees. Well, sometimes the, the term whiplash is used as a, a metaphor, uh, a way of describing uh, what happens to us as we are disoriented by rapid moral or cultural changes. Uh, last week, we were privileged to have uh, Angela Cantrell come and uh, speak to us uh, representing the, the Crisis Pregnancy Center there in St. Clair County. It was with a view toward today and the reality uh, that across our nation today, churches and, and others will be recognizing uh, this as Sanctity of Life Sunday. The whiplash comes to us if we were to stand uh, on this past Wednesday and look back at the days that preceded that Wednesday, most notably the national holiday, the federal holiday of Martin Luther King Day, and uh, think about his legacy in regards to civil rights, uh, in regards to uh, equality uh, of equal protection under the laws of our nature, uh, nation, equal privileges, uh, equal rights. And then we were to turn, and we were to look at this Sunday, and as Brad prayed, the necessity that we would celebrate and that we would pray for a day in which we would remember and oppose this culture of death that permeates our society. Dr. King fought against racial prejudice, which is there are those in the world that would determine that people of different skin pigmentation, people that are darker primarily, but I guess it goes the other way too, people that are lighter, but uh, people of differing skin pigmentation are not worthy of the rights and privileges that uh, are a part of the culture of that society. And that's a good thing. Dr. King made, uh, uh, forced our culture to look at itself in, in a very sober uh, way. And uh, that work continues. But yet, how can we in one moment say that all people are worthy of respect, worthy of participation on an equal basis in our society, and look at another group of those who bear the image of God and say they're unworthy of life. Over here, these people are worthy of respect. They're, they're image bearers. They deserve the, the, the rights of, of all humanity, and we want to protect and affirm that. And then we look over here at another group of people and say, no, that we can kill these image bearers on a whim 
Is there not a, a disconnect? Is there not a whiplash in going from one place over here, one Sunday over here, to one Sunday over here? Do you not get a little cultural whiplash? How we in one breath can celebrate uh, the uh, diminishing of, of prejudice in our society, and yet on another hand, celebrate a prejudice against those image bearers that have not seen the light of day, who have not breathed uh, the air of our world, those that reside in the womb of their mothers. Seems like a, a, a great, great disconnect and a, and a great uh, sin. And I, I think uh, it's worthy of our consideration that just as we would stand against, we would oppose any type of racial prejudice. We need to equally stand. And we need to demand the rights of uh, the unborn. That they deserve life as well. And again, this logic that allows for the murder of 60 million babies thus far, uh, that logic it's going to run its way through the entirety of culture. If you can deem, just like over here, when you can deem this color of people unworthy of life, if you can deem this group of people over here unworthy of life, then you can deem all individuals with whom you differ unworthy of life. It is a dangerous, dangerous place that we're at, not only in this country, but throughout the world. And so let us be ever mindful and ever uh, prayerful in regards to all that would contribute to upholding uh, the sanctity of all human life. Well, let's move forward today, if we can, into this book of Numbers. I suspect that your experience with this book may be fairly similar to mine. Most of us have spent very little time studying the book of Numbers. The overall story of the failure of the Exodus generation to believe God, and along with their subsequent experience of God's judgment for their unbelief, is well known. That aspect of Numbers is so well known that most people recognize and utilize the phrase wandering in the wilderness as referring to some time of difficulty or a time of testing for themselves or others. Many of the details of this book are obscure and unfamiliar to us. However, the New Testament makes great illustrative use of the events recorded in this book. And Jesus himself points to the incident of the bronze snake as a great analogy of his suffering on the cross and the necessity of looking to his finished work for our salvation. The book is a testimony to the faithfulness of God along with the parallel reality of the essential nature of the perseverance of the people of God. The failure to persevere, whether it is the failure of the old covenant people of God to enter the promised land, or whether it's the failure of those who claim to be new covenant, the new covenant people of God to continue in obedience, the results for both are the devastatingly severe realities of temporal and eternal judgments. So as we continue our journey along Route 66, let us be reminded of the promise of God's protection, His provision, and preservation as we experience his power while we persevere in godliness until we see him. That is, 
Let us not be found to have fallen short because of our unbelief. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your grace, for the truth of your word. I pray that it would be a blessing to us that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears to comprehend the greatness of your truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read beginning in verse 4 of Numbers 21. This episode involving, sometimes it's translated brazen, bronze, even some would say uh, the copper serpent. From Mount Hor, they set out by uh, the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This book of Numbers is the the fourth of the five books of Moses or the fourth of the books of the Pentateuch. It covers approximately 40 years. That is, it begins at the start of the second year after the Exodus and concludes as the sons and daughters of the Exodus generation make their final preparation to enter Canaan. The Exodus generation was punished because of their unbelief. They refused to take possession of that which God had promised first to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The land and the associated blessings were the fulfilling of the promise to Abraham of property, of progeny, of protection, of prosperity, and most importantly, of the unique presence of God. Because of God's faithfulness to his eternal purpose, all of this was extended to the descendants of the patriarchs who were these people of the Exodus. It was to that generation that God had demonstrated his power by breaking the yoke of Egyptian bondage and miraculously giving to them passage through the Red Sea, followed by his dramatic revelation of himself at Sinai. He would visibly lead them and protect them through the journey to the threshold of the promised land. But by their own rebellion, they would forfeit their privilege of possessing the land promised and all of its attending blessings. But God, because he is faithful to himself and to his chosen people, would by his grace and for his glory punish and yet preserve and ultimately place his people, the children of the Exodus generation, in the land filled with milk and honey, the land that was first promised to Abraham. As stated previously, while we are unfamiliar with much of this book, there are a number of the stories and incidents that are indeed well known. The story of the 12 spies, Uh, the frequent complaints of the people and their moral failure, along with the uh, unusual encounter with the pagan prophet Balaam and his talking talking donkey are familiar episodes from this book. I'm not going to be as expansive in dealing with the outline of the book of Numbers, but we will selectively investigate some of the episodes and incidents of this dramatic book. Prayerfully, as we have in the three previous 
sermons. May we see Jesus as high and lifted up throughout the book. Now, I've made three points or divisions of the book of Numbers. Uh, I like simple and brief outlines when it's possible to help you get your brain around what's going on in a particular book. Remember, these are survey sermons. So, chapters 1 through 10.10 deals with the departure from Sinai. Chapters 10.11 through 25.18 deals with the wandering in the desert. The final section, chapter 25, 19 through chapter 36, deals with the final preparations for the arrival at their destination. So there's three alliterated words, three D words. We can think of the book being divided into the departure, uh, the desert, and the destination. And at least for me, that kind of helps me uh, get my mind around what's going on within the book of Numbers. Now, just a bit in the way of a timeline, you've heard me say over and over again, and I will continue to say it over and over again, because I have a way of saying the same things over and over again, because they are important. But I am a young earth creationist, okay? I, I believe that the earth is not billions and billions of years old and all this nonsense, okay? Uh, Adam was probably created uh, somewhere uh, around 4,000, I'm going to be kind of big, but 4,000 to 10,000 years before the birth of Christ, okay? Uh, that's when creation came into being. And as I've told you before, uh, I'll gladly stand before God one day and let him criticize me for my failure to understand rocks, okay? Or fossils or whatever the thing is that... Um, there is no intention on the part of Moses, uh, therefore uh, no intention of, uh, on the part of the inspired author of uh, these books beginning in Genesis to convey uh, this type of age uh, for, for the creation of the earth. And so that puts Abraham uh, coming on the scene about 2000 B.C., uh, Joseph around 1900 B.C., the Exodus about 1445, uh, the entrance into the land about 1405. There's your 40 years that we are covered in the book of Numbers. And so here in chapter 1, we see the instructions related uh, to the departure of uh, the nation uh, from Sinai, and uh, we're, we're given a, a precise date, dating in this text, the, the first day, second month, second year. So they've been out of Egypt uh, for a year. They've been encamped at Sinai. Uh, uh, presumably, uh, there has been continual instruction uh, from Moses. There's been uh, preparation, organization, and of course, the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings. Notice there in verse 1, the opening phrases, the Lord spoke to Moses. Now, I could truly wax long and eloquent uh, right there, uh, but I won't say too much there. But Moses, Moses was indeed unique. And in the uniqueness of this relationship uh, with the Lord, in fact, uh, he will be described in chapter 12, verse 8, as one that God speaks to mouth to mouth or face to face, that, that God indeed had spoken to others, but, but there was a, a unique relationship that God had with Moses because of the unique assignment that he was going to uh, give uh, to Moses. And, and he certainly foreshadows, he typifies the one that would have the most intimate of relationships with God. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the one that John describes in John chapter 1 as the one who is proston theon, face to face, turned in toward, in an intimate, eternal relationship with God, hearing the word of God from all of eternity past and able to perfectly reveal the will of the Father to men. And Moses, again, foreshadows that one, Jesus Christ who is indeed God incarnate and the one who is most intimate uh, with God. And so just in that phrase, we see 
a type, a foreshadowing of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, very quickly as we get into our text, uh, we see a one of those little bugaboo things that comes up in the Word of God uh, occasionally. Now, let me tell you something. When you come to these places that are kind of little bumps in the road, the problem's with you and not with the Word of God and not with the God of the Word. Okay, just so we're clear here. But the first place, look at verse 46 of chapter 1. We're, we're told about the results of a particular census in which those that were the men that were 20 years of age and older were counted, and the number tallied up to 603,550. 600,000 plus. That's uh, bigger than the city of Birmingham, I think, currently. I think Birmingham has about 400,000 people within the uh, city limits proper. So that is a lot of people. Now, just by my kind of mathematical calculation, uh, presumably, most of these men would have been married. Uh, most of them probably would have had families. And so you can extrapolate out and say that those that were uh, a part of the Exodus, those that were encamped at Sinai, probably were at a minimum two and a half million people. And even many say far more than that, even into the four, five, and six million people. And guess what? You'll, you would never guess. They're skeptics that want to undermine uh, these numbers. And, and I, I get it. And, and, and let, let me tell you something. We do need to be careful of, of wooden understandings of, of the Bible that can lead us astray. And it is okay to investigate, okay, to, to ask questions. Is, is this the right understanding? And I won't really survey all the different ways uh, that um, people get at this issue. Probably there's a word in Hebrew, and the word is, comes into English as elep, E-L-E-P, and it's a word translated as thousands. Again, we don't have like Aramaic-type numbering here. We have words that stand for numbers. And some want to say this is a word, and it is used in other places for like clan or heads or something like that. So they want to say there are only like 600 plus clans or heads or groups or troops or tribes or something like that. I'm unconvinced, okay? I'm unconvinced. I think we should let the number we have in our translation stand. Many would say there's no way that a minimum of two and a half million people, you know, a larger number, if, if you please, could have survived in the desert. I have a two-word response to that. But God. But God. Um, I don't know how two of them could have walked across the Red Sea on dry land. And I know the liberals, you know, want to say, well, it was a shallow place and the tide went out and all that. Well, son of a gun, amazingly, thousands of Egyptians were drowned at that same place in that shallow sea. That's, you know, it's kind of wild, isn't it? Okay. All right. So it's a challenge. It's something that, that you shouldn't be shocked if you, if you run across it at some point in your studies and your reading. But I think uh, we should let the number stand as we have it here. And so... We see the, the number, this, this, this huge multitude that God has saved, has delivered, has redeemed uh, from Egypt. Uh, throughout this first section, we see uh, various uh, uh, descriptions of how the camp is to be organized, uh, both in terms of the encampment and in their traveling uh, through this desert uh, region. Uh, beginning in, in chapter 3, we see some various uh, rights and duties of the, uh, the Levites, uh, continuing unpacking and application of God's law. One thing that caught my attention, if you want to turn to chapter 5, and I have, li listen folks, my mind goes from crazy places sometimes, okay? It, it really does. Verse 11, this is um, often referred to as the test of bitter waters, Okay? 
And there have been many who have taught to kind of bring forth this particular uh, episode and, you know, apply it. I, I don't really know that I know of a way to, to, to apply it. Very simply put, um, if a husband became suspicious of the extramarital activities of, of his wife, uh, he could present her to the priest and communicate his suspicions, and the priest would give her uh, some water laced with the, the dust from the tabernacle floor. And if she had a, a, a devastating reaction to it, then she was guilty. If she uh, did not react uh, to this particular uh, test, then, then she was innocent of the uh, accusations. Now, uh, what came to my mind is about 30, maybe 35 years ago, and this pops up occasionally. There was a, a group, uh, and I think this was in Scottsboro, Alabama, and I Googled it a bunch of different ways, and I never could put, pull up the news articles, but I did read this in the, the newspapers. But there were some groups that were involved in the snake handling and all of the associated activities in that particular uh, aberration of the charismatic movement. And a uh, preacher, quote-unquote preacher, uh, in Scottsboro, Alabama, uh, was suspicious of his wife. And I can't remember if he forced her to drink poison and killed her, or he attempted to force her to drink poison as an application of the test of bitter waters. Uh, at any rate, he was arrested and went to prison uh, for that particular episode. And uh, uh, like I say, uh, that gets at what we often emphasize, rightly dividing the Word of God. Uh, uh, when we particularly uh, understanding the distinctions between Old Covenant and New Covenant, I think this was a one-time, once and for all, something that God used in uh, the ancient people of God, the Old Covenant people of God, and it was supernatural uh, in its particular usefulness and application. But Again, from my memory, that, that came uh, uh, to, to mind in that particular group. Uh, in chapter 6, you, you see something that should be familiar to you. At the close of chapter 6, you see what's sometimes referred to as the Aaronic blessing, this, this pronouncement of blessing that we close our service with many times. And I don't have time to really unpack it a, a lot, but we've, we've spent a fair amount of time uh, if you're going all the way back to our Christmas series, the genealogies, and the, this thing of blessing and cursing. And uh, we find in the creation account, God's uh, pronouncement of blessings, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, rule and subdue it, all of these things. We see that the, the curse have a dramatic effect on that creation blessing. Then we see it being mitigated in that covenant with Abraham. And we see points of connection with this ironic blessing that, that God's people would know God's blessings uh, in uh, the land. Uh, we see there in chapter uh, 7 through uh, chapter 10, again, the various uh, descriptions related to the, uh, to the tabernacle. And notice there, there's this episode. Um, involving the brother-in-law of Moses. His name was Hobab. And Moses appeals to him to, to come with them, to travel uh, with these Hebrews, these, these uh, former slaves, these, these that have been redeemed uh, by God. And uh, come with us and we will do good to you for the Lord has promised good to Israel. What do we see there? A fulfilling of, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. The promise made to Abraham in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abraham of being a blessing to the nations is fulfilled by whom? Our Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate blessing to uh, the nation. And so we're told eventually that they're going to set out uh, from Sinai. They're going to be led by the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, 
associated with the cloud and the pillar that enshrined the tabernacle, which again was symbolic of the presence of God, the dwelling of God among his people. And again, doing what? Foreshadowing the one in whom it was fulfilled and of whom it was written. The word became flesh. And you know what the Greek is behind dwelled? Tabernacled. The Word became flesh, and He tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ being the one who fully dwelled among His people. You say, well, what about now? Well, Paul picks up in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and again, we talk about the indwelling Spirit quite frequently, and He does, Okay? We, the, the Spirit does indwell the believer. He fills the believer. He, he dwells in our heart uh, by faith. But there's also this reality that God, through the Holy Spirit, dwells among the people of God. And so again, this presence of the ark, the symbol of God's presence, of His approval among the people, foreshadows the fullness of the Spirit coming and dwelling among us, the people of God. And we, we've talked many times about this, this priority of gathering as, as the people of God, that it is, again, the unique privilege and the manifestation of God dwelling among His people, uh, the reality, the fulfilling of God's presence among His people. And so they are prepared to depart from Sinai, so we move to chapter 10, verse 11. And this entire section that ends in chapter 25, and, and you can play with my divisions a little bit as to how, uh, you know, you want to start them and, and end them. But the main point is the faithfulness of God and the failure of man. That God proves himself faithful. And man consistently proves himself faithless. And so God tests and he ultimately purges this Exodus generation. We see in uh, chapter 11 uh, the ongoing complaints of the people of God and that, that God uh, brought judgment down uh, among them uh, for uh, their complaints. And we're going to see that um, their complaints is going to end in their utter unbelief and their disqualification uh, from receiving uh, these benefits that God had promised beginning with uh, Ab Abraham. And it, it really, it, as we think about this, and we're going, I'll come back to this uh, for in, in just a moment. We often in the church, I think, make light of our sin. We excuse it, or we make excuses for it, do we not? And this episode, whether you look at it, the entire nation, or whether you look at the, the tragic failure in this section uh, on the part of Moses and, and God's judgment upon him, sin has terrible and serious consequences. There's an old cliche, and I've heard it my entire life, and you've heard me cliches stick around because it, they tend to communicate truth, that sin will take you farther than you ever intended to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. How many have heard that before? I know many of you. I've, I've, yeah. That we do need to be careful and cautious as to how we would live. Again, he is indeed faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But sin is a, a sober and a serious matter. Um, as I look generationally upon my generation, again, the, the, the baby boomers, that 
Uh, I think many of the anxieties and issues that we uh, deal with as, as a group are often related to issues of sin in our background that we have not dealt with biblically. I'll say more about that in just a moment. That we haven't resolved, we haven't repented, we haven't confessed. And in, in, in failing to confess, we have not experienced God's grace to its fullest measure uh, in our lives. Well, in chapter 13, we're told the story, and it's, I think, probably familiar. Most of us have uh, heard or taught uh, Sunday school lessons related to this excursion uh, of the spies uh, there into uh, Canaan, uh, this assignment to go in and scout and come back with a report uh, regarding uh, the nature of the land and, again, its inhabitants. Now, again, I have a lot of things that intrigue and interest me. Have you ever thought about the morality of spying? I mean, in any situation, I mean, I grew up with the man from Uncle and James Bond, okay? Uh, you know, that, that, that there was always a spy movie, spy novel, spy story, and, 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 and man, uh, the fiction only began to scratch the surface of what was going on in the world. But spying is ultimately about lying. And even these men were sent in uh, to, as secret agents, so to speak, to, to, to spy and lie, uh, to, to, to scope out the land. Uh, several years back, Albert Moeller, in his uh, program Thinking in Public, interviewed a man by the name of James Olson. He's a former CIA uh, agent, teaches at uh, Texas A&M now in the School of Government. But uh, he's written a couple of books related to the morality of spying and uh, how it is as Christians can, on one hand, affirm the, the necessity of absolute truth. Uh, yet on the other hand, here God sends in agents that under his authority are to deceive uh, the people in the land. It's an interesting question. I can tell y'all are completely disinterested. So we'll just, we'll just keep on moving, okay? But the great disaster, they came back and report, yes, it's a great land, but those who live in it are greater. They're greater even than our God. One point of interest in chapter 13, verse 33, the report comes back that the Anakites are living uh, in this land. It's later reported that these sons of Anak are actually the descendants of the Nephilim. Anybody remember the Nephilim from Genesis chapter 6? Anybody remember those guys? They're all dead. And they didn't have any descendants that uh, were inhabiting uh, Canaan. But uh, we've talked about this a bit before. But, but evidently, they, they kind of churned up their own idea that these were kind of semi-supernatural descendants of this unnatural race that could not be defeated uh, by these mere mortals, these uh, uh, people of the Exodus. And so they came back. We can say more about that later if, if it interests you. But it's kind of a nice uh, point of, of contact between Genesis 6-4 and the account of the days prior uh, to the flood. But here we see that their sin and their unbelief ultimately was apostasy. Both 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrews 3 illustrate for us the, the lesson of this generation, that we must not fail to possess that which God has promised, that we must not fail to enter in, that the ultimate failure of this generation was they did not believe God. And the consequences were indeed devastating. And it devastated the entirety of the generation. We find in chapter 20 this account of Moses, this great leader, the one that, 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 Moses, uh, that God himself says of, he, he's different. I've spoken to other people, but, but I am intimate with this man, Moses. I, am, I speak to him face to face. 
And yet in his frailty, in his sinfulness, maybe in his frustration with leading these people, that when God tells him to speak to the rock to produce water for these people, what does he do? As we would say in Somerville, he frailed the fire out of it. Okay? He hit it. He struck it. And for that, and it doesn't seem like too big a deal. Just, I mean, God, he, he was frustrated. He was tired. He was dealing with all these people, all of these pressures of leadership. And yet, what did this cost him? It cost him the great privilege of not only entering, but leading these people into the promised land. Again, uh, the seriousness of sin, even the sin of Moses. Well, kind of the center point that I wanted to kind of get at today is there in 21, and this account of God's judgment of sending fiery serpents among the people of Israel, among this Exodus generation. They had Perpetually, they had continually rebelled against God. God had been gracious, providing them not only manna, but quail, giving them meat to, to eat, so, so sustaining them, to, uh, to revealing himself uh, to them so powerfully and so graciously. And yet, these people complain. I know uh, Joey Brittner may remember this. I attempted uh, from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, to preach this passage uh, in Guatemala a few years ago. It was a colossal failure. <laughs> Have you ever heard communication is a difficult thing? Go home, talk to your wife today, you'll see. But um, it's difficult, particularly, I have a hard enough time in English only, but to go from Somerville English uh, to Spanish to you know, whatever they can understand was a challenge. And so I lost the congregation, the pastor, and everybody else in trying to go back and forth between the way Jesus appealed to this incident. And it took about five or ten minutes of uh, Spanish for the pastor to kind of get us back to a place that I could maybe dig ourselves out of the hole. But the incident and the, and the remedy, these serpents were biting the people, and they were dying. What a great picture of sin. And God instructs Moses, you build, you make, and some say that it was a copper serpent. I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to get into it. Uh, but at any rate, a metal serpent. And raise it up high above the people. Put it on a standard and lift it up and command the people to look at the serpent. In other words, quit looking at the snakes and trying to run from them, but obey, trust, lift your eyes up, quit trusting in yourself to be able to dodge the snakes, trust my word, and look, in a sense, look at the curse on the pole. Quit relying upon yourselves. Rely upon me and my word. And this touches on something I, I kind of alluded to a moment ago. It forced the people that would be delivered from this curse. It forced them to take full and complete ownership of their sin that provoked the curse. Now again, I'm many times kind of accused of being a bit overbearing, a bit heavy-handed, a bit abrupt or abrasive or all of these different things. I see people nodding their head. I didn't think I was that bad, but okay. But, um, but here's the thing in, in, in preaching the gospel and in, and, in, and in trying to counsel people, trying to help people, until you get an individual to the place that they own their sin, that they fully recognize, I have sinned and there is no other remedy. I cannot fix it myself. 
until they're at that point, they will never look at the one who is high and lifted up. Ultimately, we don't look at a metal snake on a stick. We'll look at a Savior who said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. And if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. We look unto the Savior who is high and lifted up. We quit trying to figure it out for ourselves. We quit trying to save ourselves. And again, some people say it's a quick look, and then you're back down here looking at the snakes. No, 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 no. I have fixed my eyes upon Jesus. He will deliver me. He will deliver me from the fiery serpents. The one who was bruised on the heel for me has crushed the serpents under his feet. You see that? Promised in Genesis 3, pictured in Numbers 21, fulfilled in John 3. The picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one who was displayed publicly on a standard for us. The one to whom we must look. The one who became a curse for us. For our salvation. Look unto me, all the ends of the earth. And be saved. And so, we see this great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. But upon this great victory, you know, they just can't get out of themselves. In chapter 22, we see the discussion of this encounter with Balaam and Balak. And um, Balak is the king of Moab, and he is afraid of this great nation that's going to uh, come across his land. He enlists this pagan prophet Balaam. This is where we get the incident of uh, the talking donkey. And as you read through it, I think maybe our initial observation, well, Balaam wasn't such a bad guy. He told the truth. He didn't do what Balak asked him to do. But I think further investigation, he was a, a profiteer. He was one uh, that was looking for his own unjust and un ungodly gang. And he is blamed for being behind the failure of the Israelite men there on the plains of Moab as they would become involved in the ritual prostitution with the women of Moab and tw over 20,000 would die as God judged them for that. The final section of the book of Numbers, chapter, beginning in chapter 26, tells of that final time of preparation let me call your attention to chapter 33, verse 50. This, these instructions by God given through Moses, this is what you're to do. Verse 52, drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Destroy all their figured, destroy, uh, figured stones. Destroy all their metal, metal images. Demolish all their high places. You shall take possession of the land, settle it. I've given you the land to possess it. We see this and in other instructions that they shall engage in holy war. They shall engage in scorched earth across this land, destroying everything in its wake. One of the things, and you've heard me say, and I'm working on this, and I mentioned it last week, I believe God's law has relevance for all people in all places at all times. But we need to understand the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant. And there are things that we have to be very careful about. And uh, the new covenant people of God are not called upon to eradicate any people. They're called upon to go into all the nations and disciple those nations and preach the gospel and teach them everything that Jesus commanded them, making disciples out of them and then baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And again, He is with us throughout this task. Our task 
in some ways is similar, but is also very different, a different methodology. Christians are not called upon as Christians to take up the sword and the shield other than the sword and the shield of the Word of God. And so let us be mindful of that. Well, finally, we see Jesus Christ is ultimately the true and faithful Israel. He is the obedient Son. He has entered in and He is leading us into this Sabbath rest. He is that prophet that we'll see next week that is like unto Moses, the one who was most intimate, fully intimate, ultimately intimate with His heavenly Father. That indeed, God through Moses fed these people the manna in the wilderness and sustained Him, but Jesus is the true bread that has come down from heaven. He, he, as Moses delivered water to the people as they needed it, Jesus Christ is the living water, and those who drink of that water shall what? Never thirst, because He ultimately satisfies. Paul describes Jesus as the rock that accompanied this generation through the desert. Many refer to Him as the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, certainly the presence in the holy of holies, the true and effective Passover lamb. We see Aaron and his frailty as a man, as a high priest. And he, like the other high priests, would offer these sacrifices, the daily offering of the blood of bulls and goats that could never accomplish the forgiveness of sin but there would ultimately be a high priest, a high priest of a greater order, the order of Melchizedek. And, and he would offer an effective sacrifice, thus ending the need for the animal sacrifices and accomplish our salvation. And so indeed, strange as the book is, and I suppose as dramatic as it is, and it is dramatic, uh, I've heard there's a very famous movie uh, about the, the exodus and uh, all the things that uh, went along with this, uh, this story. But in all the drama, in all the, all the spectacle, never fail to miss that indeed in a type, in a shadow, in so many ways, it portrays the ultimate and final work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who became a curse for us and was high and lifted up to deliver us, his people, from the fiery serpents of our sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your revelation, your testimony of yourself to us. May we always see you as the one indeed who is high and lifted up, the one who hung on a standard for us, for our salvation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.